The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show today. Today, we're talking about my favorite topic, relationships. Well, I should say relationships, emotions, connections, trust. These are the things that I believe drive a company culture and that fundamentally make businesses run, work efficiently, produce things, all the good stuff. Now, the quality of the relationships directly impacts the productivity and the engagement levels in an organization. And I happen to personally believe that the quality of the relationships affects your career advancement as well. So what can we do as individual leaders to improve the quality of the relationships around us at all levels? And why is it that these relationships are so complicated to begin with and what do we do about it? And then along the way, I want to talk about what does that mean we can do to improve the organizational culture, and that's the focus for the day. So with me today is Ethan Schutz. Ethan is president of the Schutz Company, which is a consulting, training, and publishing company that helps people drive this human side of business for the purposes of achieving bottom line success. Now, Ethan was originally trained as an architect, and he was managing projects where he realized that the various people coming together to build buildings just did not work so well together with resulting impact on the building, and found along the way that he was most passionate about helping the groups work more effectively. So he changed directions in his career and joined his father, who is a creator of the widely used theory of interpersonal relationships called FIRO, and one of my favorite theories, and in his business. And as a result, Ethan is now responsible for combining both his business experience from the building industry and his knowledge of human interactions to help companies make money. So Ethan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. All right. So let's start with the fundamental question at the very, very beginning. What is it about relationships that make them so complicated to navigate? Well, I think there are a number of factors. Um, first of all, I don't think that many of us, or not many at all, um, ever receive any formal training on how to relate to other people. It's the sort of thing that we're expected either to know already or to pick up along the way. And I think uh, relationships work differently from a lot of other things that we encounter in our work lives. Most of us in our work lives are taught to think logically uh, even though relationships have a logic to them, they're not the same. It's not the same kind of logic. They involve emotions and feelings. It involves assumptions that we make when we don't have full information. Uh, it can relationships can trigger fears in any of us and do at times. And we have a whole different way that we behave when we're fearful. 
Um, and I don't believe that a lot of us have uh, really invested the time to learn skills that can help us with relationships. So I think there are a number of factors. All of those things can be exacerbated by stress and situations around us where there's a lot of pressure. You know, I have said this for ages. If you look at the educational system in the Western world in particular, we spend an awful lot of time teaching kids how to do mathematics and science and analytical thinking and writing and creative writing and a whole bunch of things. But we don't give them a whole heck of a lot of clues about what is perhaps the single most important thing in life, which is relationships. So I agree with you. We're not taught it as if it were, you know, biological somehow that we would just get along with everybody or understand how to relate to people. Right. So, uh, you know, so what do we do about this? How do, can we begin to think about relationships in a way that helps us understand create, understand the logic that exists in them? Well, I think, first of all, I think over the last couple of decades at least, there's been more of a recognition of that and more of a focus on that. Um, many things in the popular language uh, have come out that are reinforcing of the idea that it's important to focus on relationships. From the whole notion of emotional intelligence, um, to coaching that has really been on the rise and further work that's done in organizations, I do think there's a greater recognition. What I find is that most often um, the approaches that we have really focus on what behaviors should we do. And even I'm thinking of even uh, my kids' school, they, they have a whole section on character building, which is a lovely idea, and it focuses on what you should do and what's right and wrong. I think the difficulty with that, as much as that is a good step, is that it, it's almost a one-size-fits-all. And in order to really capitalize on what each person brings to the table and figure out how we can truly relate better, I think we have to have a different set of assumptions rather than there's a right and a wrong way. So why I am so passionate about the work that we do is that the work is really intended to be a comprehensive methodology for bringing, for allowing people to learn about themselves first and how they operate rather than judging if they're doing it correctly or not. And then from that basis, learn, well, how do I then interact with you? How do I understand what you're like? And how do we therefore bridge any gaps or negotiate any differences that we have? So I think there's more work to be done. I do think there is a collective, um, if you will, uh, fear around going to the place that I think makes the biggest difference, which is actually focusing on the feelings that we have, both about each other and about ourselves, ultimately. So what do we do about it? I think we continue to focus on this. We treat it as, um, despite the term uh, that we often use as soft skills, I think we treat it as a real hard skill, something that is crucial for success. Um, I'm reminded of one uh, particularly funny comment that somebody made in one of our uh, workshops. This was a workshop done at NASA uh, where we were focusing on relationships and self-awareness. And there was one uh, person in the room who he was really digging into this material and he was uh, getting more self-aware and trying to do the work of, of relating better. And at one point he paused and he said, you know, 
I am a rocket uh, rocket scientist, and this actually feels like harder work. <laughs> I, I think that sums it up well. This is hard work. This is the stuff that we all grapple with every day. And until we start treating it as such and come up with a, um, well, and apply a real methodology to it, I think we're we're destined to do better, but not really get our hand uh, our hands around it. Okay, you know I agree, Ethan. That and we've done a number of radio shows on emotional intelligence, and there's some lovely thinking and understanding about emotional intelligence, understanding the feelings that I have and the feelings that somebody else has in a simplistic way. So both myself and my uh, and other. But somehow for me, as important that as that is, it doesn't give me a way to think about someone else, who they are, how they are, how they are similar or different than I am, and what that means about how we relate. Which if I mm. follow your work, that's exactly what you're about, is understanding the differences in how we choose to relate, want to relate and where that sets up different dynamics. Is that a fair summary? It is, and I, I would go one step further, which is I think the, um, the really crucial piece is that we uh, acknowledge and feel the feelings. Um, I think many of us are trained so much to either avoid or hide our feelings uh, that that often gets in the way. In other words, I can, I can look at a a list of wonderful behaviors. You know, I should listen more and I should speak more carefully and so on. And there are wonderful ideas. And I think there are a lot of uh, approaches out there that have wonderful ideas. Uh, the question is, why don't we do them if we have those things? And I think for me, the answer lies in, well, I don't actually shift my behavior unless I shift how I feel. That actually comes first because my feelings drive my behavior. So, right, our work really focuses on first uh, letting people have their feelings. Uh, we like to say we, we want you to have your feelings rather than your feelings having you. Um, because then, first of all, we can connect around the feelings that we have. Um, and then we have a basis on which we can uh, figure out how do we relate to each other, taking those feelings into account. All right. So, Ethan, that sounds... Um, subtly different and profoundly important. So let me just get this one, that if we don't shift how we feel, then we don't shift our behaviors. So the beginning right. place is to think, is to first understand, acknowledge, really feel how it is that I feel. And then right. we can talk about how we relate to someone else. Okay? Exactly. Yep. Boy, do we not do that well, um, kind of, because the whole notion is, let me wipe over those feelings. That's that weird stuff I don't really want to talk about. Um, so, so say more about why you think the feelings are the really critical part to come first. I mean, I know that we're emotional creatures, and I know that we are all going to say, and I fundamentally believe, we make decisions emotionally and then justify it after the fact. But why right. is it that this, this is so critical for shifting our behaviors? So take the example of a New Year's resolution. I can say to myself, okay, uh, January 1, I'm going to start exercising. And I've probably said that, you know, 20 times over the last 25 years or so, uh, yet I'm still not doing it the way I want to. So it's a wonderful idea in my head. It's a great behavior that I'm going to tell myself that I want to do. But unless I feel like exercising uh, or I feel that I'm getting uh, more than I'm losing when I exercise, I'm probably not going to do it. Uh, one of the notions that we have 
in this whole body of work is that I do the things for which I get some kind of internal payoff. So I'll give you an example. I like to um, do my work well because when the boss uh, praises me, I feel good about myself. Now, I can say it's because the boss praised me, but in actual fact, the reason I do it is because I feel good about myself when that happens. Even when I do things that on the outside look like they're not such good things to do, I get some kind of payoff for that. So, for example, I may do, I, I may, maybe I argue with my boss, and that seems like not such a good idea on the outside. But I might walk away secretly feeling that I was right or that I stood up for myself or that I uh, didn't get pushed around or something like that. These are often feelings that I have that I don't necessarily want to acknowledge on the outside or even to myself, but they drive what I do, right? So if I follow that logic, then not exercising means I get some sort of payoff for that, right? I, I, first of all, maybe I get to sleep in. I don't get to work, you know, I don't have to work that hard. Um, maybe I get to feel a little bit sorry for myself, or I get to uh, get some sympathy from others about how hard it is to uh, make myself get out there and exercise. It connects me more to people who also don't exercise. There are a whole variety of things that I'm, uh, payoffs, if you will, that I might get from continuing to do it the way I'm doing it. And until something shifts at a deeper level where I feel like, you know, it might be hard, but I really like to do this, or I like the outcome, or I like the way that I feel about myself when I do it more than these other things. Um, th those payoffs, those internal feelings tend to win. Okay, so I put it in a simpler statement, which is the payoff of continuing to eat dessert or whatever else it is that I do as my bad habit that causes the weight gain is greater than the payoff I might get eventually from losing a few pounds. So there's an immediate gratification as well. Right, right. But I certainly get you in the workplace where I feel like I stood up for myself. I feel like I was right. I feel like somebody else is at fault. And mm -hmm. that is the better payoff than taking accountability for doing it differently. Absolutely. Okay. Exactly. All right. Yep. So step one, and this is an interesting place we land. If we start this conversation talking about relationships and how is it that we make relationships more effective in some form, and then the story comes, well, first you have to start with how you feel. And until you understand how it is that you feel about yourself and what payoff you're getting by doing the behavior you're doing, we're not going to make any progress on how we relate to other people. I don't know. What an interesting starting point. We make it stuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get stuck. Okay. All right. So I have all these feelings about other people, presumably because they don't do what I want them to do or any number of yep. other reasons. Yep. All right. And then I take a deep dive to understand something about myself. All right. And then what's next? How, what happens after that? Well, then part of what we're, well, how can I put it? What happens after that is that I have a lot of new awareness uh, that I can use in the moment. So you and I are sitting talking. If I'm aware that, ooh, you know, there are times when I really want to feel right, um, we start to look at, well, what's underneath that? Uh, what, what is it that I'm concerned about? Um, 
that I'm, I'm using that to protect myself from. So this is where we really get to the idea of internal fears and defensiveness, which it, this can sound overly dramatic. Um, the idea is that we all walk around with some fears or call them concerns, if you want, all the time. These are not necessarily debilitating. They're not necessarily huge, but they're there. So, for example, well, this is a really easy one at work. Uh, to some degree, we all have some worries about making sure that we're doing things competently. Of course, we want to do a good job, and we want other people to acknowledge that, and I want to feel internally that I did a good job as well. So anytime that that uh, is potentially threatened, I might get fearful, in which case I might try to I might adjust my behavior so that I don't feel that. I don't want to feel embarrassed. I don't want to feel that I made a mistake or failed or anything like that. And so we do a variety of, uh, of things to make sure that we don't feel that way. That often uh, presents as being defensive, which is really where we get stuck with each other, particularly in the workplace. It's, it's what we tend not to like about each other uh, when we see each other get critical or act like a victim or go into denial or a number of things like that, those are the things that we really dislike. So a lot of what we are trying to do is help people become less defensive through awareness and more open about what's actually true for me. So I might come into my boss and say, well, I'd like to give you the report that you assigned me, and um, I want to talk about it because I want to check with you that you got what you want and that I did the job that you were looking for and I might even add, you know, I have, a little, I have some nervous about this. And so that's part of the reason that I'm checking. So we, have, we start to have different conversations instead of perhaps an older conversation that might have been, you know, here's the report and I'm, I'm sort of on my guard um, and I'm ready, ready to refute anything that the boss says to prove that it was okay in the first place. Okay. So it's this understanding what fears are tapped, what internal fear gets tapped, how it gets tapped, and what my patterns of defensiveness are so that I change the conversation I have with people. So rather yeah. than going into my boss and say, here's the report with a bit of attitude of how dare you criticize it. Instead, if I can go in with my boss and say, here's the report, and I'm a little nervous about this one, I checked in this section, especially this section right here, I'm a little worried I didn't get that exactly the way you wanted it. My defenses are now down, I've acknowledged the fears, and the conversation shifts accordingly. Yes. Now, what some people will bring up is, well, what if the boss still says, what's wrong with it? Because that's always yeah. possible. That's where the real self-work comes in. The more aware I am of myself and my own internal processes, the more capable I, I am of coping with that. So interestingly, it turns out that if I want to be more effective in relationships, starting with myself turns out to be more effective than trying to change the other person, which is, mm -hmm, I don't know about mm -hmm. you, but often that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do, and I wish they would be different, and if only they were different, my life would be wonderful, right? The problem yeah. with that is, of course, all they have to do is not change at all, and I'm stuck. Right. right. So the yeah. more capability that we build for coping with, uh, with other people, which really means coping with my own feelings internally, then the more we can be present and problem-solve with others and connect with them and support them even when they are having a difficult time and the more flexible we can be. 
boy, that's a, that's an interesting one and more flexible. Okay. I say to people all the time, I mean, so I'm with you. Every time we're trying to change somebody else, A, it doesn't work very well. I always say to people, you can't change the person that you're living with as your life partner. You're certainly not going to change somebody that you work with. So every time you're trying to change somebody, you are in the wrong. It is quit it. Just absolutely quit it. And I get, you know, I always get argument back from the class. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But they're wrong. It's like, I don't care. They're not changing. How about you change what you do and look for a different outcome? So I love that statement. And we do. And then, but then we turn ourselves into a victim, exactly as you say, because you didn't change. Therefore, nothing else can be better. And it's all your fault. Okay. So, shifting this, becoming more aware of our own internal fears and defensiveness allows us to be more capable to dealing with the other person for however they show up and whatever they do and don't do. And therefore, more capable of coping, more present, more problem solving, and more flexible. Wow. Sounds like a fabulous journey. Okay, Ethan, we're going to take a break and continue with this one. Because when I come back, I want to talk a little bit more practically about, so how do you go about doing this? And we'll get a couple of examples. With me today is Ethan Schutz. He's president of the Schutz Company. And we are talking about Ethan's work on FIRO theory and how this helps take relationships, emotions, connections, trust, and ultimately drive better business results. And if you'd like to know more about Ethan's work, check out his website at www.humanelement.com. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Ethan Schutz. Ethan is the president of the Schutz Company, and Ethan's 
role currently is helping organizations improve the human side of business in order to drive bottom line success. If you want to know more about the services that Ethan offers or about the theory, it's at www.thehumanelement.com. All right, so we've just been talking about this whole nature of relationships, and I want to try to summarize all that's been said in just a couple of sentences. So the basic notion is that people walk around in the world out there and they generate emotions. I have reactions to them. Those emotional reactions trigger my own internal fears and my own defensiveness. And once that gets tapped, then I'm off to the races in trying to get somebody else to do something differently, to change them in effect. And when I do that, we're probably not going to get very far in our relationship. So, And it's often the things that the variety of defensivenesses that get triggered is what we actually end up disliking about people. So the notion here is the more I can tune into how I am genuinely feeling, not just tune into but actually feel it, then the easier it is for me to begin to shift those feelings. And once I shift those feelings, I can shift how I relate be more flexible, have better relationships, and drive better business results. It sounds like a wonderful outcome. So, Ian, I want to talk for a little bit about um, FIRO theory. So can you just kind of give us a really quick summary and synthesis of this theory and why it's so important? Sure. So FIRO stands for Fundamental Interpersonal Relations Orientation, which is, you can tell why we call it just FIRO, because that's a mouthful. Essentially what that means is, this is a theory of how we relate to one another. So it measures my preferences about how I like to be in relationship with other people. Uh, it measures around three different dimensions, inclusion, control, and openness. And the, the theory arose from some original research that my father was asked to do in the U.S. Navy uh, to determine how to create uh, very productive teams. And what they found was that uh, they would train the individuals in teams to be very technically competent and assemble teams. The problem was that some teams performed very well and some teams did not. So his research focused on how do we get more productive teams all of the time. And the central finding that he came out with was that, of course, people need to be technically competent, but they also needed to be something he called compatible uh, compatibility he defined as working well together. So there we are at the relationship part. How do we work well together? Uh, so fast forward through uh, a number of decades of research and experimentation with uh, different techniques for working with people. The final outcome that he came to was this. We don't get in trouble working in teams because we're different. We have natural differences. That's okay. We can leverage them uh, to make better use of everybody's um, strengths and skills. We get into trouble instead when any one or more team member gets rigid, meaning we hold on to our position. So if I, for example, say, no, no, we have to have a clear hierarchy and structure in our team, a clear line of you know, chain of command and so forth, but you instead would prefer to have a more equal uh, setup or let things unfold as they do and make decisions more loosely, um, we will get in trouble if either one of us gets rigid about that position. So what I'm describing there is a, a difference of preference around control, one of the dimensions that we have. So the theory becomes useful in figuring out where is it that we can get stuck, 
and where is it, uh, how do we actually like to behave with others so that we can understand ourselves and other people. Okay. All right. So now just for clarification, inclusion, uh, control, and openness. So inclusion is my preference to involve lots of people. uh, Control is my preference to have things under control and to be in control. And openness is my preference to be open with other people. Is that a good summary? Yeah, I'd just add a couple things. So the inclusion is really the amount of contact that I like to have. So that can take the form of being around a lot of people, or it can take the form of being with people all the time or most of the time if, I'm, if I prefer a lot of inclusion, as opposed to preferring a little inclusion where I like to spend much more time on my own or just have occasional contact with people. Um, okay. To clarify around openness, what we really mean by openness, if, I'm, if I prefer a lot of openness, it means that I like to be I prefer to be open about all of my experience, my thoughts, my feelings, my memories, my intuition, how I'm feeling, the state of my body, everything about me. And we, what we're saying is that we vary on these things. Uh, some people prefer a little bit of openness. Some people prefer a lot. Some people are in the middle. Those are simply preferences. There's not a right or wrong place to be on any of these uh, scales. Okay. So in a team, then, the compatibility, using your father's term, comes because not because you have a preference for a lot of openness and I have a preference for a less amount of openness, but because either of us become rigid in our preference, meaning the only way we can relate is if we're open. Okay? Right. That's right. Okay. All right. Now, so can you tie this all back to feelings? And how I, feel, how I feel about circumstances. Yeah, so the feelings is what drives my rigidity or my flexibility. So let's take an example. If I'm, I'll give a common one in, in uh, the workplace. So around the area of control, um, different people want to have different amounts of control over others. So sometimes I like to be in charge and I like to give direction or be the leader or even set the structure under which we work. Other times I might like to uh, leave things loose, let them go with the flow. Maybe I like somebody else to be in charge. So we have that variation. Now, tied to the area of control is the fear of being embarrassed or uh, humiliated or feeling like a phony, feeling like I didn't do well, I'm incompetent in some way. If I feel that or I'm concerned that I might feel that, what I tend to do is adjust my behavior to avoid it, right? I don't want to walk around feeling embarrassed or feeling like I don't know what I'm talking about. So one thing I can do is hang on tightly to control. So I make sure to control every little detail. If I'm the boss, maybe I set up the agenda for the meeting, you know, minute by minute. I've got everything planned out and I won't accept any deviation from the plan because that way I won't be caught off guard with something I'm not prepared for. And in practice, what that then looks like is a micromanager, somebody who's paying attention to every single detail and controlling every little piece. Um, The reason is not necessarily because I'm a bad person or anything like that. The reason is because I'm trying to make sure that I don't feel bad about what I'm doing. And where it becomes rigid is that the moment I let go of that control, then the fear returns. Uh Uh-oh. If I don't control every little bit, uh, things may not go well, and then I will feel embarrassed and humiliated, and I don't want that. So I become rigid in the high control area. 
Now, this is an equal opportunity employer. I can actually become rigid anywhere along this continuum. I could also become rigidly low in control. Uh, I've met some people like this where they say, well, uh, yes, I'm the boss, but I like to let the folks under me um, develop, you know, so I give them lots of opportunities to make decisions and, and do things on their own, and I don't get in their way. And it sounds very magnanimous on the surface until there's a situation that really requires the boss to be in charge and make a decision. And then you might notice, oops, at that point, they're still abdicating making the decision. Um, and that rigidity on low control starts to get in the way where people say, well, wait, you know, we really need your leadership now and it's not there. And that's sometimes how you can notice it. The micromanager one with the high control is, of course, a very common pattern that we see um, in workplaces. And the people who are micromanaged often react. Yeah. I see both of those, actually. Uh, micromanager and what we call the laissez-faire manager, where mm-hmm. they just aren't paying attention and kind of, you know, it'll be okay. It'll work itself out. You know, that's yeah. good for people, that sort of thing, when decisions aren't made. Okay, so, Ethan, the fundamental principle underneath this is that in leading people, there is no right way to go that it is a matter of having flexibility, or often we use the word versatility, that mm-hmm. it's sometimes you need to do this and at other times you need the exact opposite of it. And what you want is for people to have the comfort in going one way or the other. Um, giving direction, not giving direction, pushing people hard, pulling back from pushing people hard. So we could take every dimension you could name and the notion is there's this, this versatility in going either way. So it sounds like that's underlying, and I can have my preference then for which side of that continuum I want to fall on so long as I don't get rigid about it. The moment I get rigid about it, I have to do it this way or else I get afraid, Mm -hmm. then we have trouble. And now I see why you say it's the fear. It's that internal fear that's driving all the stuff that makes relationships so complicated. Exactly. Okay, let me do a slightly different one. Sorry, I'm talking so much here. I'm going to give it back to you in a minute. But as my listeners know, one of the things that I, (laughs) one of the things my listeners know is that I care a lot about helping women advance. And one of the challenges for women is that they often end up being high controllers. Mm. But one of the issues behind that is a fundamental fear. So a fear that my boss won't value me because my boss actually depends on me to make sure things are in control, one. Mm-hmm. Or two, a fear that I don't actually understand how to navigate the dynamics of this organization because I don't quite fit in it. So therefore, mm-hmm. the only way I can be sure that everything is kind of cool and okay is to maintain control. Mm. Yep. Different set of fears. So, okay, the penny dropped for me on that one. Okay, so now I see, Ethan, why you, in the human element, take people back to fundamentally understanding what is it that we're feeling for the purposes of just getting at what is it that we're afraid of or what is it that we're gaining more benefit from not doing than from doing. Yes. Okay. So, and then you say, once I understand those feelings and the fears and the defensiveness, it allows us to have different conversations. So, can you give me an example of how that works? You gave one before. Can you give a different one? Yeah, um, I'll give you an example of my own. Um, I was working with a coworker on um, a specific project. It was two of us together, 
and we had very different uh, preferences around inclusion. I liked to work together, and she liked to work alone. She liked to do a lot of preparation on her own and then come together just briefly uh, to share information and then separate again. And we um, banged up against that, if you will, for a number of weeks in working on this project where I, I kept saying, well, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. And she said, no, I want to go back and, to my office and think about it. Um, until we figured out, oh, wait a minute, we have different ways of going about this that feel better to us. And we finally sat down and had a discussion about how are we going to work together around this. So instead of having it under the surface as something where, at least for me, I was trying to convince her to sit in the room with me so we could go through things and, and think about it together, uh, instead of that, we had a discussion which meant that we were also listening to each other in a different way about how would you like to do this and why. And that's when I learned that for her, it was she had an easier time having some space by herself to think things through in detail rather than trying to think in the moment with other people in front of her. And I realized, oh, that's so different from me, where I get inspired by hearing other people's thoughts in the moment. And until we had that discussion, that hadn't occurred to me at all. So at that point, we were able to say, all right, well, given that, how can we structure this so that we're both getting some of what, you know, what we need or want in this so that we can maximize our work? And we were able to work out um, a mix of times when we would do individual work and we would come together to do some brainstorming and then go back and so on. Just the fact that we were aware of it meant that from that point on during the project, we were able to notice in the moment if we were getting uh, off the rails, if you will, and say, oh, wait a minute, you know, did we just hit that thing again? Let's hold for a moment, just talk about that for a second and figure out what's the next thing to do. And I found for myself, I could become even more sensitive to it and just notice, oh, wait, should we stop here and, uh, you know, and have you go back to your office and do some thinking about what we just said? Would that be helpful? I could then say that without feeling like she was wanting to leave or get away or not want to do the work or all of the other various assumptions that went through my head that had been totally unchecked before. So that different conversation allowed us to bridge a gap in preferences uh, quite effectively. Okay, now I can imagine some people would say in this example, yes, Ethan, but that takes longer. So stopping the work and letting her go back to her office and, you know, think to herself and then come back together, that takes longer. Don't we just need to sit there and slog it out? And what's your mm. response to that? Well, so I think the real comparison is not between sitting and slogging it out and, in this case, her going back to her office or us doing a mix of the different methods. Um, the real comparison is how long did it take to do the whole project? Because if we had never had this discussion, a lot of slogging it out is really not getting much work done. Because what's really happening is that underneath the surface, we're arguing about how to do the work, and we're not actually getting the work done. Um, sometimes we phrase this as, uh, this is about working on the work, not working on each other. Because uh, I think the myth is that if we 
push the emotions aside, or the preferences in this case, those feelings, that somehow it won't matter and we'll go faster. But in fact, that's not true. The feelings are still there, and they do slow us down. One of the things that I do uh, with groups often is I simply ask them, how many of you have been in a meeting that didn't go the way you wanted? And, you know, everybody raises their hand because we've all had that experience. And then I say, well, why? What happened? And the reasons are usually things like, well, there was one member who dominated or somebody who talked too much or some people who didn't participate or some people who argued or something like that. It's almost never about the actual content of the meeting. It's rather about the way that people interacted with each other and how that meant that we didn't get things done. And I think that's where we really need to look. Are we actually getting things done by avoiding the feelings part? And my guess is in most cases you're going to find that not a whole lot gets done or it doesn't get done well because we compromise and we kind of avoid the problems and that means we're compromising the work itself. I often think that if we took out that one of the big drivers of stress is other people. The people who don't do what I want them to do the way I want them to do it, to be quite honest. And the feelings that get generated because of that. And then we spend an inordinate amount of time fussing and fuming and thinking and worrying and stressing about it. And I actually think that's one of the big drivers of stress. So I think you're right that it really, really slows us down. Yeah. Okay. So, Ethan, we're going to take a break here again at this point. Um, this is still a lot to try to summarize. So, first off, with me today is Ethan Schutz. He's president of the Schutz Company, which is a consulting training publishing company that helps people navigate the relationship side of business to achieve a better productivity bottom line and productive teams. The website, if you want to check it out, is www.thehumanelement.com. The notion here, again, to try to summarize all of this, is that we have different preferences in how we choose or want to relate around three dimensions, inclusion, control, and openness, varying amounts of what we would like that to be. When we get rigid about what our preferences are, and usually the rigidity is driven by my fears and my internal fears and defensiveness, often about my fears of things not going well or looking bad or being an imposter or being made to be wrong. And I get defensive. One of the things that happens when I get defensive is I can get rigid. When we get rigid about any of these preferences, then we're going to find that the relationships get tangled and we start arguing, debating, not progressing the work. So the focus then is to first understand what it is that I am genuinely feeling, what are the source of all of these fears and defensiveness, and then to be able to have a conversation with someone else in a different light about the preferences and find an alternative strategy that's going to work. Okay? So, Ethan, I hope that's a good summary. When we come back, I want to talk about how all of this drives a culture of an organization and what you can do to alter the culture. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Ethan Schutz, president of the Schutz Company. Ethan and his company help people understand how to access their feelings and drive relationships to have more productive teams. And I'm going to leave it at that. The website is thehumanelement.com. Okay, so Ethan, I just teed this up on the backside to say that we wanted to talk about the organizational culture and how can we impact the culture. So it just let you say for a minute, how does all of this affect culture? So when we start to shift the conversations away from what is typical, where there are there is either uh, blame or avoidance when things are difficult or stressful, when we start to shift that to more open conversations where people are self-accountable, meaning I'm speaking from my own experience, I'm not blaming you, I'm focused on solving the problem with you, uh, then the culture starts to shift. So what that looks like is that people are more open and authentic with each other. They don't uh, shy away from having different, difficult conversations. It doesn't mean they're easier. It simply means that people are willing to go there, partly because they have more skill and partly because they know that by doing that, we solve problems and actually we become a lot more efficient. Instead of sweeping things under the rug, even sometimes in many cases for years, uh, we deal with things and we work through them. So you could say we work through problems, not around them. So the biggest thing that we see, uh, to sum it up, is less defensiveness and much more openness in the culture. Wow, but that wouldn't that be a fabulous outcome yeah. to get the defensiveness yeah. down? Yeah. Well, and, and it brings up a good point, which is, People will sometimes hear this and think, well, that sounds great, you know, and how on earth are you going to do that? And the answer is, yeah, it does sound great, and we probably never get there perfectly. This is not intended to be a perfection model or something that, you know, we could replace one day with a pill, um, although that'd be great. Who knows? Um, this is rather a problem-solving model because what we're saying is, yeah, we're human. 
uh, we're going to get triggered, uh, we're going to make mistakes, and that's okay as long as we know how to get back on track with each other, as long as we have some tools for recognizing what's happening, and we can course correct. The, the analogy I love, uh, someone told me once, I've heard this for a couple different places, I hope it's true, is that when you're flying in a plane, um, you're actually off course about 90% of the time, meaning that they're constantly making course corrections. You know, the wind comes up and all that sort of thing. I think that's what's going on here, too. We're not going perfectly straight all the time. We go off the rails. We, we drift away. And this is about bringing ourselves back together as a group, being in it together, recognizing our common humanity. Um, and together capitalizing on that. You know, we've been talking a lot about uh, fears and defensiveness. It can start to sound very negative and very scary. And really the cultural piece, what I notice most in a culture that has started to embrace these ideas is people have energy and passion um, and they are feeling excited even when things can be difficult because they're capitalizing on one another's energy. And the analogy that I like to think of is can you think of a place in your life or a situation in your life where it was just pure joy to, to be working with other people? And for me, I think of things like being in a musical group, part of my background, um, or for some, maybe it's being part of a dance troupe or being part of a, um, a play or something like that. We don't tend to think of those things in the same terms like, oh, this is work, because it doesn't feel like work. When it's something that I'm passionate about and I'm really working well and connected and engaged with everybody else who's doing this, there's a joy. Um, sometimes it's called being in flow uh, that comes from that. And that's really what we're trying to create. One of the things we talk about is that this whole process that we call the human element is about dissolving the blocks so that we can experience that full joy and passion and creativity that comes, from, um, comes out the other end. And that's what helps us to be successful. Okay, so let's take an example. Um, I'll give you a simple one. Maybe you have a better one, but you have a team, a relatively small team. Let's say there's a number of people involved in this, so we'll give it about eight or nine. And we have different preferences how people want to work. You know, maybe some people want to work in a quite open-ended manner, meaning I'm going to work whatever hour feels like the right hour for me to work. That might be three o'clock in the morning, and it might not be. I might be in the middle of the day and someone else is quite structured in how they want to work. So we have different preferences in how we want to do the work. And those preferences create tensions in the team. Absolute uh -huh. strong, intense tensions. And people start to feel that one thing is right and the other thing is wrong. Or uh -huh. I know when I can count on you and I know when I can't count on you. And now we have different individuals in that team who start to have intense dislike of each other, shall we say. Yep. What work do you do then with that team to help them move to a place of joy? So almost counterintuitively, what we find is to help the team, we start by working with the individuals. And so we begin with a process of helping everybody gain more self-awareness. That's where this theory comes in, because we can look at people's behavioral preferences, like we talked about around inclusion, control, and openness. But the theory actually continues and has two other uh, layers to it. So underneath those behavior preferences, there's also the way that I feel about other people. 
And underneath that, there's the way that I behave and feel towards myself. So when I learn more about how I behave and feel towards myself, I also start to learn about how that has an impact on the way I feel about other people and what I do with them. In the process of each person gaining that awareness, they're also learning a lot about each other, which means that they're then positioned to have much more open conversations with each other at a much deeper level. So what we're supporting them to do and the skill that we're teaching them is to have those open conversations so that instead of letting that tension build up, or if it has built up, um, addressing it, we want to address those issues as they come up or make a place for it so that we can talk through not only how are we different, but why and what is it beneath that that's driving it. And what I find is that when people actually get to that point where they're talking about what's really real in the room, things shift. Because then we have a deeper understanding of one another. You know, if, if, I, if I see you as uh, somebody who's um, very different from me, you want to be open and I, I prefer to be less open. As long as I see you, and like you said, if I just label you as being wrong, um, we are stuck. I don't know anybody who likes to be labeled as being wrong, so we're, we get into a back and forth. That's often the water cooler talk, right? But if I can understand hearing from you why it is important for you to have high openness and can feel the feeling that you have or, or at least empathize with it, and you can empathize with mine, we tend to connect. And when that connection happens, there's a lot of understanding that happens and a lot more acceptance, both of myself and of others. Uh, one of the things that we do when we train um, practitioners in this work, often we have a, a crowd from many different countries. People come from different places to be trained. And it's very common for people to say uh, toward the end of this program, you know, I came here with my colleague. I met this other person who's from a completely different country but we really understand each other because uh, at a deeper level, we feel similarly and they connect on that level. After that, the cultural differences, the, the behavioral preference differences simply become of interest. Oh, that's interesting. Huh, you, you play all this out in a different way. But our core humanity, how we feel underneath it all, seems to be pretty common. And that's a very connective. So the core of it is about how we feel, and that's where we connect. Okay, so let me come back to the little example I give you about the team. I really like this, that the notion is that when you really get underneath through both why I, the way I feel about others, the way why I behave the way I behave, and why, what I feel about myself, and we can begin to talk about why I do what I do, then we connect at that more human level, that more emotional, real feeling level, I guess, is the best way of describing that one. So let me come back. In the case, so suppose in this case, you know, there is a lovely um, um, bit of a discovery, maybe not as deep as it needs to be, about why each person needs what they need and how they're thinking about it. And they have a lovely coming together and then you know two months later they've gone back to exactly where they were before do you find that that happens often yeah How, absolutely like, so we have to keep reiterating this in other words it's a process not an event absolutely it's like 
it's like any other professional practice that we do. It's something, you know, we even have used that word in cases. It's a practice. It's something I do continuously and I get continuously better. Um, and often I get better by making mistakes and then thinking about how to do it a different way. So some of the work that we do is helping to create the atmosphere that it's okay to be imperfect with one another, partly because we are all imperfect. I hate to say it, but I think that's true. Um, and let's, uh, let's notice that and work to accept it rather than trying to act like um, or cover up my own imperfections because somehow I think that you're perfect and I'm not. Okay. All right, Ethan. Um, fa- I mean, absolutely fascinating. And it sounds like that it's a practice that you have to do a lifetime of work on, that it's a continual journey, I guess is what I want to say. So if I just try one more time to summarize this in our last minute here, the notion is that teams and organizations and cultures get stuck because we don't recognize what is really underneath the surface in terms of our feelings and emotions. So if I can gain self-awareness as an individual, first about my behavioral preferences, and then what it is about that, that how I feel about others along the way, and what that means about how I feel and behave about myself, and I can share what it is that I feel and behave about myself. We connect at a human level, and then the behavioral differences become not the annoying things, but the things of curiosity. Oh, you do that differently than me. And through that process, we actually make a deeper, stronger connection that ultimately drives productivity and the organizational culture. That's right. That's well, well said. Fabulous. I'm quitting there before I totally screw it up. <laughs> so with well me today, with me today is Ethan Schutz, a president of the Schutz Company. Um, as you've been hearing, hearing, Ethan is a specialist in the FIRO theory, which was pioneered by his father. And understanding the nature of human relationships and the ways in which that drives productivity, organizational culture, and I'm going to add a word for this, inclusivity. Website, if you want to read more, is www.thehumanelement.com. So, Ethan, thank you very much. This was fabulous. Thank you so much. My favorite subject as well. Indeed. And then I'm going to say, please join us next week with Susan Threadgold, and we're going to talk about energy zappers and the impact that those have on your presence. So join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. We'll be right back.